Hey, everybody. How's everybody doing? Welcome to the latest edition of Boston and Believe in Boston Betting with your host, Shukri Wright. As we are now joined by a new guest in the podcast. You've seen him on Nesson and Fox Sports. Sammy P joins us on this edition of Believe in Boston Betting on the Believe Podcast Network. Sammy, what's going on, my man? How are you doing? Doing great. Thanks for having me. Doing well. Not as good as the Boston Bruins are right now, which I don't think anybody saw coming, but it's the best time of the year. We've got the World Series, college football, pro football, NBA, NHL. I don't know how I find time to sleep. <laughs> you know what? You know what's interesting? One of the things that entering the fall, I don't think many people could have saw the Bruins flying high. I mean, and if you told me, if that the Bruins were going to be here, we are as we are about to enter the month of November, the best team in the NHL. I would have told you you're out of your mind, considering the amount of injuries that we have, and and when you consider the start that the Bruins have gone off to in terms of the offense, the goaltending, what has surprised you um, the most, Sammy? I think their ability to win multiple ways. You know, the first couple games. We're track meets. The first four games all went over the total, over the total in Las Vegas. So we've seen them win these 6-3 games, the 5-3 games, the 5-4 games. But they've also been able to win the 2-1s and the 3-1s. And that's what mm -hmm. Bruins fans are used to, you know, winning those physical games. When I think of watching the Bruins as a kid and through college, I think of Zdeno Chara and Dennis Seidenberg and Tim Thomas and Tuka Rask. Like, all right, the first at three is going to win this game. But – I think Montgomery has allowed them to play with pace and speed and skill, which yeah. Bruce Cassidy didn't always want them to do for whatever reason. And I think their versatility has been the most impressive thing. But let me say that I interviewed Jeff Davis from Circus Sports, who is yep. their head hockey bookmaker. And we did a story on Nesson over the summer. And I remember posting the story on Twitter. And the quote from Jeff was, at full strength, they are the second best team in the Atlantic. And he wow. basically got laughed off the internet. Like, no shot, Tampa's in the division, <laughs> Toronto, Florida. And look at them now, without Marshan, without McAvoy, without Brandon Carlo, Grizzly just got back recently. They are the best team right now in the Atlantic. And I think that's yeah. been the most impressive part. They're shorthanded. But they have proven that through, what, seven games of hockey so yep. far, mm -hmm. they can win pretty much any way. And, and to answer my own question, and, and I, I would love to hear your thoughts on this, what surprised me most about this Boston Bruins team so far is, is the goaltending. Because I didn't expect uh, Lennis Olmark to be clearly the number one guy so far this season, we knew going into the season that it was going to be Swayman and Olmark again, like it was last season. But many people expected, including myself, expected that Olmark was going to be the backup and Swayman was going to be clearly uh, the number one netminder in Boston. However, it's been the reverse. It's been Olmark and as well as Swayman, who has gotten out to a cold start. So, that's what that's what surprised me more than anything. What is, what is your assessment and thoughts on the, on the goaltending so far from the, on the Bruins? 
I remember sitting on the set last year, postseason, pregame, thinking, you know, Swayman gives them the better chance to win. So I thought that last postseason and down the stretch last season. But with the way that Olmark has played so far in this season, it almost justifies the contract that he was given. Now, it doesn't wholeheartedly fulfill it because it's only, you know, six games or so but he has really looked like a number one goaltender. And that is what this team has lacked in the postseason since the bubble when Tuka Rask decided he didn't want to play and, uh, and risk COVID and all that, which you understand, you know, health and family is more important than sports. But I think just from a fundamental standpoint, when you look at Olmark, he's a monster, dude. I mean, that's the oh, type absolutely. of guy – that's the guy you want in the crease if he's playing well because he's six four, he's two hundred and twenty pounds. He's built like a you know a middle linebacker, and, and and when he stands tall, his tall is taller than Swayman's because he fills that net out much more than Swayman does. Swayman's still putting weight on. I don't think he's even two hundred pounds. They list him at like. 198. I don't think he's close to 198, and he's not as big, not as tall. Um, I had a buddy who told me a long time ago, you know, the first team to put a sumo wrestler in net is going to really figure it out. I don't know if I'm, I don't know if I'm there. Sammy, I'm sorry. But, <laughs> but Olmark is well, definitely. Well, I was, I, I, I was a not expecting goalie. that. I mean, seriously, you know what that reminded me of? What you just said? You ever seen that Geico commercial where they have like a live walrus in net? And, I mean, well, that's what exactly what that reminded me of. My buddy told me five years ago, the first team to put Yokozuna in that is going to change the game. <laughs> wow. I, okay, that, that, really, that, 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 that surprised me. I'm still trying to wrap my mind like, wait. So we're now doing sumo wrestling uh, references on, on a sports podcast. That is new. But you know what? To hell with it. I'm I'm open for like going off the rails in, in a way, but but this was a that was a that was a good one, um, Sammy. And and speaking of uh Swayman, are you concerned in terms of his start to the season? Um that he's got that he's had his struggles in net and at at what point do you believe that he'll be that he'll be, be able to begin to to turn things around? I'm not concerned. I mean, at the end of the day, he's a 23-year-old kid. He turns 24 around Thanksgiving, and it's a very small sample size. Two games, uh, giving up nine goals in two games isn't ideal when you compare it to the 11 goals that Olmark has given up in six games. But this is a very, very young goaltender. I mean, without looking, Jeremy Swayman in the NHL, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to type this up as I answer. Sure. He can't yeah. have 40 starts in this league. You know, like maybe maybe it's 50, but it, it's like he's so ripe and he's so raw and he's still learning the NHL game. And, and look, it's, it's tough to get better when you're a kid, when you're not playing. So I'm not going to say the Bruins should send him down. Um, other organizations would want a kid like Swayman to play and play and play, but he's a very capable backup goaltender in the NHL. So I think the biggest challenge for him is to stay prepared, is to stay mentally focused, and stay ready because there will come a time in this contract for Linus Olmark where he is going to find himself on the injured list. It's inevitable for a goaltender. You know, goalies get hurt. So it's important that Swayman stay focused and stay ready. But I, I would be a fool if I overreacted to a two-game sample size. 
Oh, absolutely, which is why I, I'm not panicking, like, at all, at least as of yet. I mean, but it has been, you know, like, chatter amongst Bruin fans as to, like, hey, what's going on with Swayman? I mean, although, like, Omar has been the story in net for the Boston Bruins, but the uh, but the the two games in which that um that Swayman has played, it's definitely um raised a few eyebrows in which that, you know, like, we're not used to seeing um, Omar struggle um, to, to this um, extent um, thus far, but it's early in the season. I think there's, there's more than enough time to like, you know, iron the kinks out and, and whatnot. Speaking of ironing the kinks out, did you expect the top six um, forwards for the Bruins to, to look as good as it has looked to start the season, especially with the check line of Pavel Zaka, David Krejci, and David Pasanak, considering that Krejci coming back after a year playing in his in his home country, for him to um, to have the kind of impact that he has had so far, I did not expect it to take off this quickly. Um, you know, when I was in Chicago covering the Blackhawks back when they were good, I was there from 2012 to 2018. The best season that Patrick Kane ever had, or the best seasons, if you will, mm, yeah. were when he was playing across Artemi Panarin. Some guys are just symbiotic. They know where the other one is going to be at all times, and they elevate their soulmate, their hockey soulmate. And that's really what you have with David Pasternak and David Krejci. They just they always have this awareness and this sense of knowledge of where to put the puck when the other player is on the ice. I mean, there's a reason Pasternak has scored 12 points in, what, seven games? He's got five points yep. or five goals and seven apples. Um, but even Krejci, you know, he's got two goals already, not known to be a goal scorer, but more of a distributor and more of a guy who sets up his teammates. Um, they've been electric, man. You know, 20 combined points in seven games. And I think also the speed of Pavel Zaka was sort of an unknown. Like we saw glimpses of him um, when they would come into Boston, but we didn't really know, you know, the MO for Pavel Zaka. But but those three, they play together on the ice. I use that term symbiotic because I really do think Pasternak and Krejci think the game extremely similarly. They remind me a lot of Kane and Panarin. Um, but Zaka and Krejci and Pasternak, like they, they're best friends off the ice. And I think yeah. oftentimes we think of these players as numbers and as salaries, but they're also people. And when you're having fun and playing with some of your best friends and you're all getting along and you're putting pucks in the net, it makes life that much more fun. And I think these guys for the first time in a while are enjoying the pace and the freedom of this offense. On the betting side, now tomorrow night the Bruins are home to face off against the Detroit Red Wings, a much improved Detroit Red Wings team, despite the fact that that, that they're going to be entering this game at three one and two. I mean, they made some key um, signings in the offseason. You know, they brought in the veteran David Perron, um, most notably Stanley Cup winner, the guy who's been a, a consistent twenty goal scorer throughout his career uh, with the St. Louis Blues. Now. The the betting line, according to Sportsline.com, was that the Bruins were at a, a negative one point five at a, pl a plus one fifteen. Based on what you've seen so far, do you think that that that, that line, as we get closer to puck drop, will move? And uh, would you take the over or under in, in terms of this matchup between the Red Wings and Bruins tomorrow night? 
Yeah, I don't love laying the puck line. I don't like laying a puck and a half. I think a better way to bet that, you know, a lot of these sports books now have regulation lines. And what that is, and I'm sure you know what that is, you basically mm-hmm. bet inside 60 minutes. So it's it, you, the juice is about the same. But rather than lay one and a half goals at, you know, plus 130, plus 140, I can lay the Bruins to win the game in regulation at minus 150. It's a very similar bet. If it goes to overtime, the, the bet's going to lose, but so is the minus one and a half. So it's it's basically the, the same wager. So I like that bet more. I do think the Bees win, but I'm telling you, I, I think it's very, very wild to look at the Boston Bruins in seven hockey games so far and see that they are five and two to the over. I mean, this is this has wow. been for years a team that that doesn't want a part of a track meet, that doesn't get up and down the ice. And Davis and I, I mentioned Jeff Davis, we did a story last week about the first four Bruins games all went over the total. You know, and, and it wasn't really all that close. Five to two, six to three, five to three, seven to five. I mean, these games are totaled six, six and a half. Now, you know, we did see a two to one and a three to one. But the way that they're playing, their expected goals per 60 minutes are up, and their high-scoring chances are up. And that's because Jim Montgomery believes in pushing the pace and getting up and down the ice. And and I really do think for a team that was, you know, I can say this because I believe it. I feel like they played a little handcuffed last year, and they were Mm. very conservative. They are much more aggressive that year. Now, look. You still need to get stops in the postseason. You still need to play strong on the blue line. But in the regular season, this team can win a lot of games if they unleash the horses and let them run. And I look at a total here. It opened at six between the Wings and the Bees. We're at six and a half at a lot of sports books. I think this game is a five to three final either way. So I would go over. That would be my favorite bet for Detroit and Boston on Thursday. Now, as we continue to look at the Bruins, and one of the things that I, I, I've always have had this thought in mind and this belief that the healthier the Bruins get on the blue line, the better this team will be and continue to be defensively. We know that um, that Charlie McAvoy, he's getting closer to return. Um, Matt Grizzlick. Um, uh, he uh, he already returned as well. And when you when you look at the overall play of the blue line so far to begin the year through through the first seven games, what has stood out to you? And and like, is there an area in regards to the defenseman core of this team that concerns you? No concerns yet. I mean, it's hard to be concerned about a group that's shorthanded, but also putting up wins and racking up points left and right. Um, you know, I think it's clear that that Lindholm and McAvoy combo, assuming they are healthy in the postseason, that's going to be one of the best one-two punches in the league. So you have that to start with. Grizzlick fits in well on the two line. I think they're going to go Carlo and Grizzlick. And then in the postseason, that gives you the option to rotate basically Forbert, Connor Clifton, um, you know, some of those other guys on the, on the bottom end. I think that gives you even Mike Riley potentially could, could be on that third pairing. You know, they, they are deeper than people think. But the other thing to think about is that a lot of these good teams like the Tampa Bays, 
and the uh, and the Floridas of the world. Well, Florida's maybe a bad example because they didn't exactly go very deep last year. But mm. the fact that that McAvoy and and Carlo and, and Marchand's not a defenseman, of course, but the fact that those guys are going to come back end of November, maybe December into January, depending on which one we're talking about, they're going to be fresh, man. The gas is going to be full in the tank. They're not going to be running on empty. And this Bruins team, they lost to the first round last season. So if we have a postseason matchup where the Bruins face the Tampa Bay Lightning in round two, say, for example, you know, you're going to have a well-rested, fresher Bruins team, even though they're on the old end in a lot of ways with with Krejci and Bergeron and, yep. and those fellas. You know, Tampa Bay, I mean, how much more can they play? How much more can they burn the candle? And how much lower can the tank get before those guys just flame out in the first or second round? You know, they win back-to-back cups and then go back to the Stanley Cup final. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's that's insane. You know, I, I remember the Blackhawks won in 13, lost in the Western Conference final in 14, won the cup in 15, and then in 16, they were freaking dead. I think they lost in the first round yeah, the in National. 2016. Yep. Yeah, they were the one seed, but they, they burned it all the way through the regular season. They I, Correct me if I'm wrong, they were the President's Trophy winner in 2016, or in they were 15, close to 16? it. And then they got – yeah, but yeah. then they got to the postseason and there was nothing left. They had no sauce. And I think that's going to hit certain teams in the East where the Bruins – they're going to be fresh, man. I think that's something that a lot of people don't think about. The fresh legs and the lack of mileage over the last couple of seasons, that definitely plays a part of this postseason. By the way, Sammy, the, the President's Trophy winner in 2016 was Washington. Okay, but the, the Blackhawks but, but, but were in the, but the they, conversation. But the, but the Blackhawks, they, they, were, they were top there. They, they, were, they were like a top five like in, in terms of um, standings and whatnot, but yes. Yeah, they were the one seed in the West for sure, and then they lost, like you yep. said, to Nashville. Mm-hmm. But the point was, you know, three straight tenuous, hard, mild postseasons. It caught up to a team with Jonathan Taves and Patrick Kane, Duncan Keith, Brent Seabrook, Corey Crawford. You know, the, the mileage is is undefeated at times in hockey, and there are some very good teams in the East that have been going to war for two, three straight years. And I would much rather be the Bruins who uh, who haven't had long runs. We don't want that, you know, if you're a Bruins fan, but but going into this season, I think it could play uh it could play potential the other way. Absolutely. And and I thought that's such a great point that you brought up because I've always thought that teams that go on prolonged deep runs at some point you're going to run out. You're going the candle is going to um, be burned like now. Let's go back to the 2019 when they got upset in the first round by Columbus. And they've gone, as you mentioned, to the Santa Cup final like three straight years since 2020, 2021, and then again like, last year. Now, this year, I do wonder if they like, – I'm sure the motivation is there, but I just don't see the same spark. So far, it's early. I'm not pushing the panic button, but I don't see the same spark with this lightning team that I saw maybe last year or even the year before. And and I think when we get to like March and we, we you're play, basically playing every other night on average, and and like you get closer to April uh, when the Stanley Cup playoffs roll around, you wonder like 
how much how much gas is left in the tank? And I personally think that this is the year that the Lightning do take a step back because it's very difficult to go to the Stanley Cup Finals four straight years. The last team to, to have done that, to pull off that feat, was the New York Islanders back in back in the eighties when when they won uh, four in a four in a row. A lot of players with a lot of mileage. Stamkos, Braden Point, Alex Kalorn, you know, Pat Maroon's been in a handful of Stanley Cup finals over the last couple of years. Kucherov, yeah. Victor Hedman, you know, I mean that's a that's a very, very solid core, but but they have been through a lot. And some of those guys started going to deep playoff runs in 2015, 2016, 2017. So there's a lot of hockey on a lot of those legs and and I think that's still a team, even though you don't want to, you know, you don't want to exert yourself and play to the Stanley Cup final every single season because it's so taxing that next year. That's oh, still yeah. a team you, you sort of want to step on their neck now. You don't, you don't want to see them in the postseason, even though they, they might be a little worn out. That is still a team now. You know, they're, they're in last place in the Atlantic. Have the Buffaloes beat them. Have the Ottawas beat them. Have the Red Wings beat them. Put them down in the standings so they're not even a thought in the postseason. Because even though they might be battered and bruised, you still don't want to face that crew in the playoffs. Now, shifting from the NHL to the NFL, the the Patriots. (laughs) Oh, man. I was at the game Monday night at Gillette, and I couldn't believe just the way that the crowd reacted to the offensive struggles of the New England Patriots, the first three offensive drives. And – I want to get your thoughts on the way that Bill Belichick handled the quarterback conundrum, because I really do think it was, it was a conundrum. Mac Jones should not have started on Monday night. And as well as, do you believe that Bill Belichick handled the situation correctly now that we know that Mac Jones is going to be starting against the New York Jets at MetLife Stadium on Sunday? Why or why not? I think there are certainly – several red flags that are coming to a head as we approach November. And, you know, Mm -hmm. Belichick, for all the success, the six Super Bowl titles as a head coach, two as a defensive coordinator with the Giants, he always gets the benefit of the doubt, right? Usually he gets the benefit of the doubt. But there are three issues, and I wrote about this on Nesson.com in August. There was no real plan at offensive coordinator. You know, they were deciding between a defensive coordinator and a special teams coach in a league that is filled with, you know, exciting play callers and smart guys and electric quarterbacks. Bill's plan was to go with Matt Patricia or Joe Judge. And I thought that was sort of a problem. And, you know, at the time I was walking around Nesson and walking around Boston and people are like, it's Belichick, he'll figure it out. And you're like, okay, I guess that makes sense. But but you look now, and here we are through seven games. There's no planted quarterback right now. You yep. still have a defensive coordinator calling shots on offense. And they have three wins, Shukri, against the Steelers, the Lions, and the Browns. All of those teams are in last place right now. And... I think, you know, you could start Jones, you could start Zappi. I know that was your question. I don't think there's a difference at this point. My Mm. concern with the team is their defense. 
they got absolutely shredded against a horrendous Bears offense. Horrendous. You can't give up 33 points at home and expect to win. That's and why by the way, Sammy, 260-plus the yards they allowed on the ground. You can't do that, and that's not a Belichick defense. And, you know, the stunning truth is the schedule is only getting tougher. There aren't many gimmies or free spaces on the board. You get the Jets twice, and the Jets are they are better than they've been. You get the Colts mm-hmm. with Jonathan Taylor and company. You go to Minnesota on Thanksgiving and face Kirk Cousins, Justin Jefferson, Dalvin Cook. Then you get the Bills. You get the Cardinals, the Raiders, who are always dangerous, the Bengals, the Dolphins, the Bills again. You know, we could have looked five years ago and been like, all right, well, they'll beat the Jets twice. They'll beat the Raiders. They'll beat the Bengals. They'll beat the Dolphins. We can't do that anymore because when this defense doesn't play well, they need a young quarterback to come over the top. And I'm not going to get into Brady and Belichick here, who was more important, because I think it's a dumb argument. But at yeah. the end of the day, as great as Belichick has been, the Patriots are 20 and 20 since Tom Brady left. Because and Brady this, always mm-hmm. covered up the defense having a bad game. He always was able to make the throws in the fourth quarter. And whether it's Jones or Zappi, they're not going to do it. I've always have had the belief that if you have two quarterbacks, you had none. And, yes. and we talked about, and when I say we, I'm talking me and, and several other fans um, at the game Monday night. We were talking about this during the fourth quarter where the Patriots were getting punched in the mouth, punch after punch after punch, Mike Tyson style. And the thing that occurred to me was, this is the first time we've seen Bailey Zappi struggle. And and I already knew that after the game, and I made a video on on, tw- on Twitter about this and wish that this was going to be a talking point in, in Boston uh, sports media uh, on Tuesday. And it's been a talking point all week, even up until now as we record this podcast for Believe Network. I, I sit here and I, and I say to myself, could this whole media storm been avoided whereas i do think at this point in time that it doesn't do the patriots any good moving forward yes we know that mac jones is starting on sunday against the jets but i am concerned from an x's and O's standpoint and i and i would love to get your thoughts on this because this Jets secondary has been scary good headlined by sauce gardner who may be the best young young secondary player in the NFL. Now, I'd like to get your thoughts on that. They're a very improved team. And, you know, Jeff Ulbrich has sort of been building towards this. He's their defensive coordinator. You know, they spent a lot of draft capital on that secondary with the aforementioned Sauce Carter, but they also got Michael Carter, the nickelback in the draft. And they've been very good at sort of going through the trash. And I don't mean to say these players are trash, but look at their linebackers, Quincy Williams, C.J. Mosley, Quan Alexander. None of those three are homegrown dudes. You know, they purposely scouted these guys and wanted these guys. So a lot of these defensive players have been sort of cast off from other teams, and the Jets have been able to come in with Robert Sala and Jeff Ulbrich and go, all right, here's how we're going to make these square pegs fit in round holes. And, and you have to applaud that. So, I, look, I think I think schematically there's a lot to like here. 
because they are very, very solid up front with Sheldon Rankins and Quinnen Williams at stuffing the run. We know the Patriots are going to try and run the ball because that's what they always do. They, they try and set up the pass via the run. But if they can't run, they're going to have a hard time throwing the ball against the secondary with Sauce Gardner and DJ Reed. So I have my concerns about the schematics like you do. I have my concerns about them being able to throw the ball down the field. And I also, let's let's flip to the other side of the ball. There's a lot of speed and a lot of skill in that Jets receiver room. You know, with Garrett Wilson and Denzel Mims and Corey Davis and Braxton Berrios, you know, those aren't exactly household names. I think Garrett Wilson might be one eventually. But if you get the ball down the field, all four of those guys can make plays. Now, Brees Hall is off of the season with a, a bad knee, um, but they still have the ability to stretch the field. And uh, this is not going to be an easy matchup for the Patriots by any stretch of the imagination. And now that, now that we talk about it, the, they played the Jets two of the next three games. We got this Sunday – and then the very first game at home at Gillette, the very first game at following the bye, they have to buy a week 10 for those, for those of you that are listening that don't know. And when I look at the betting odds for this game coming up, right now the money line is, is at Jets at a plus 118. And based on what we were just talking about in terms of the, 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 the matchups, like the wide receiving core of the Jets being – Vastly improved for, for, for Zach Wilson, who is healthy this season and uh, versus a Patriots defense that just allowed 260 yards on the, on the ground. And in certain spots of the game on Monday night against the Bears, they struggled in terms of the pass, um, on pass defense. Do you think I, I personally, I'm leaning towards taking, taking the over for, for the Jets. Do you believe that is a wise bet? Why or why not? Um, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm sort of torn right now as we tape this. We've got some time to think about it. Obviously, the game will be on Sunday at 1 o'clock Eastern. Yeah. I didn't look at the total, though. Like, I'm looking at the point spread. And I was talking mm. to a couple odds makers this morning, and we were discussing, you know, why did the Patriots go from a one-point favorite on the road to a two-and-a-half-point favorite? You know, and we've you and I have already chopped it up on, you know, the inefficiencies the Patriots have. But yeah. in what world should this Patriots team on a short week after getting carved like a pumpkin against the Bears, why should they be favored on the road? Like, are we are we just getting lost in that? Well, they'll bounce back because that's what they've done in years past or. Are we getting lost in the, well, it's a must-win, and Belichick wins must-win games? I, I think it's wild to me that this spread is getting closer and closer to three. And I'll tell Ooh. you right now, if we look up on Saturday or Sunday and you can give me three points with the Jets, that's my play. Like, I don't feel the need to pull the trigger right now. I don't, I don't really bet a lot of games, but I do bet a lot on the ones that I like. And if you're going to give me a full field goal at home with a team that I think is better and has a better offense and a better secondary and they're playing better ball right now, I mean, the Jets are 5-2. and two. How are the Jets almost a field goal underdog at home? That, that's my question to you. Make that make that's sense. A, 
That's a great question because even w- as I was, I was thinking about this before the recording, I was like, you know, I really want to take the Jets because, like, because, like, right now, being their favorite at two and a half, as you mentioned, almost three points favorite at home. I don't think it's a automatic guarantee that the Patriots um bounce back in this game. As much as in the past, many people will believe oh, Belichick always bounced back. Like he's gonna be fine. Like I'm not so sure because for the first time, and I would say in almost a decade, the Jets are a legitimate and formidable foe in the division. As much as we love to talk about Buffalo, and Buffalo's clearly the class of the AFC East, don't get me wrong, but the Jets are right there. They're better than Miami, and at this current point, they're, they're certainly better than the Patriots based on what, what we both have seen from this team so far. I have a hard time believing in anybody who told me that heading into November, the Patriots would be the worst team in the AFC East. You know, we knew Buffalo wow. would be the cream. We knew they would be the most talented team, and we knew that they had Super Bowl aspirations. But anybody that that had the guts to say that on October 26th, October 27th, the Patriots would be in dead last behind the Jets and the Dolphins, I don't think you could find a person that's on the record saying that because, well, maybe not in maybe in New England, not in New England, but like you wouldn't find you wouldn't find somebody you know, on Charles Street that would have thought the Pats would be in last place heading into November. And that's the wild part. Like, they are – they're not closer to the bottom. They are the bottom right now. Oh, absolutely. And I, I'm there currently myself in terms of, um, like, just the shocking aspect that the Patriots are currently last in the division. But – so I want to switch from from the from the from NFL to to the NBA real quick, just to touch on on the Celtics um a little bit. They got shredded in Chicago, um lo- losing to the Bulls, uh, uh one one twenty to one hundred two, and it's four games in. But the thing that I keep coming back to in terms of the Celtics team, despite them winning three of the first four games, is that defensively, they don't look like the same team they were a year ago. And a lot of it has to do with the absence of Robert Williams. I mean, he is such an important factor as to why the Celtics defensively were the number one team in the NBA a year ago. And and, and Sammy, when you look at what the Celtics have tried to do in terms of, you know, like patchwork, in terms of making, like adding guys, Oh, that that you'd hope could at least put, try to at least fill in the void that is Robert Williams. Like he's not going to return until maybe December or January, if we're being generous. Um, what worries you in terms of like the, the defensive aspect? Because Jason Tatum said it himself that they can't get by giving up a hundred plus points every night. It's a very fascinating team, and of course, the elephant in the room is the coaching situation. And I'm sure you've discussed this on your show in the past, so we don't have to dive deep into the Udoka River. But I I do have my concerns. You're you're spot on about Robert Williams III. You know, in an offensive league with high-octane offensive players, this team still found its identity by building rim protection and then setting everything up through that. Like, Robert Williams played like a pterodactyl last year. 
you know, being able to basically control the rim with both hands. He wasn't breathing fire, but he was close. And when you can protect the rim and negate shots at the cup, it opens up your transition game. And right now they just don't have that. You know, Al Horford is no longer a back-of-the-basket center in the NBA. And nobody they bring off the bench can do that either. You know, I mean, get get Noah Vonley and Blake Griffin. Get get them out of my face as rim (laughs) protectors. You know, they're not guys that are going to stop the bigs. They're not going to stop the Giannis's and the MBs of the world when these games get close in the fourth quarter. But I, I really also have my concerns going forward about Masula, the interim head coach, being mm. able to make proper adjustments. You know, we won't know this until we get to the playoffs because the regular season, I always call it the uh, the 60-40 league. Like 60% of the time these guys give a shit and 40% of the time they don't. Yep. When you get to the playoffs, though, and it's a best of seven, you have to, as a coaching staff, you have to figure out how to take away what the other team does well, and you have to make the proper adjustments. And we know Udoka can do that. Years under Popovich, years on that staff in Philly, you know, working under Brad Stevens, that guy has figured out how to manage postseason series. We don't know what Joe Masula is as a postseason coach. And, look, the Celtics could win 48 games. They could win 58 games. I don't care. I need to see what this team does in the postseason and how they adapt to life in the postseason when they get punched in the mouth. Williams coming back will help, no doubt about it. But if they are out coached in the playoffs, they are in trouble. And that's my biggest red flag with this team right now. I I agree. Um, like uh, in terms of like, Al Horford is not a rim protector in this league anymore. He's better suited to play the uh, play the four. If, if if I'm being generous, like he's still a pretty solid, um, like like strong forward, but he's not the the center that he could like. Let's say go back to even the last season, in which that there are times that he played that role very well, and I just think that even. When I watch Luke Cornett out there, doesn't have the same effect, and that's no disrespect to to Cornett, the guy himself. But I and, and even when, when they went out and they brought in um, Blake Griffin, I looked at it. I said, you know what? This is a good, solid piece to bring off the bench. But they are they are going to need someone other than Al Horford to be able to play those those key minutes. And, and as you said, we're really not going to know, like, the the ability for Joe Mazzulla, the interim head coach of the Celtics, to um, ability to make in-game adjustments as, 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 they, as they play, like, six or seven game series against um, formidable teams in the East. So I wonder... If you are Brad Stevens and you're thinking ahead, because even when Robert Williams comes back, there's got to be a part of you that thinks that it's only a matter of time before Robert Williams has to miss a game or two or if not a little more because he has not shown the ability to stay healthy for a long stretch of time. Is that accurate? Do you think that assessment is accurate? Well, knees don't exactly get better over time for seven-footers, you know, um, not to keep going back to my time in Chicago, but I think a very similar type player that I got to be around a lot. And, 
He had a really good run for a handful of years. That was Joakim Noah. The problem mm. is, you know, these seven-footers, anything below the waist usually doesn't tend to get better over time when you're that big. You know, the bigger you are, the likelier you are to get hurt. I mean, ask Ralph Sampson about that, you know. But Joakim yeah. Noah, you know, once those knees started to go and once once he started to get the plantar fasciitis, you could see the writing on the wall because he didn't have the lift. He didn't have the, the kangaroo muscles anymore, what I, I like to call him. Like, he wasn't able to be <laughs> fast twitch anymore. And that really sort of, you know, derailed his career. He signed that big deal with the Knicks, and it didn't work out. But he put together, you know, seven, eight really strong years in Chicago. But once he started the deal with the, the groin and the knee and the ankle and the, and the fascia, you know, it wasn't sunshine and rainbows anymore. Now, Robert Williams still has, hopefully, a long career ahead of him. But, you know, at 25 years old, he's probably, you know, I, I, I don't think you can expect more than four or five good years at this point, given how a guy, you know, 6'10", with a 7'7 wingspan that's getting pounded in the paint on both ends of the court. You know, guys like that just, they don't last in this league. And, and those would be my concerns going forward. But I hate to, you know, throw, you know, sad music on this conversation about a team that's still <laughs> one of the top teams on the betting board. You know, they have the, the best odds to win the East and the second or third best odds to win the NBA championship. You know, we don't want to be thinking four or five years down the road when you're, you know, ramping up with Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown and Marcus Smart and Malcolm Brogdon. Like, we don't want to look too far down the future. But that would be my concern, you know, in the macro. Um, I think another interesting point to uh, to focus on, and, and this might not make people happy either, um, last year the Celtics were lucky in the postseason. And I say that because they faced a Nets team, that, you know, Kyrie was in and out of the game, in and out of the lineup, in and out of his own freaking head. Ben Simmons didn't play. Then they get to the Bucks and didn't have Middleton on the floor. Then you get to the Heat, who were without Kyle Lowry. Tyler Hero got hurt with a groin. Jimmy Butler had a bad knee. I mean, they hit the injury lottery in the postseason last year. They did. And mm. oftentimes being healthy in the playoffs is more than half the battle. I don't feel like every opponent they play en route to a potential trip in the finals will fall apart at the seams. And that really did work in favor of the Boston Celtics last year. And last question to wrap up the episode. Do you think as the season moves on that Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown will be able to continue to provide that much-needed um, leadership that they've been able to provide thus far? Because there's a, there's a level of focus that I've seen so far from, um, from Brown and Tatum that's been impressive. But I wonder if that is going to be able to sustain itself over the course of, of the entire 82-game season as we get to um, the postseason. I'm hopeful. I really am. And as you know, it's more than just stats. You know, it's more than Jason Tatum – scoring 30 points a game or Jalen Brown putting in 25 and seven, you know, like those things come and go. We have good nights. We have bad nights, all of us, especially professional athletes. But I think the key here is to look to the room 
And I don't think that Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown need to be the most vocal leaders or the most rah-rah guys, but they're going to need to know when to lean on the Brogdons and the Marcus Smarts and the Al Horfords. You know, those guys, those guys have such a wealth of knowledge and experience, and they've been in this league when times were tough. You know what I mean? Yep. <laughs> they know what it's like to lose, and they know what it's like to suffer and be on bad teams. Where Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown have, have sort of been born on second base, and that's not their fault. I mean, Danny Ainge built a monster with, with the team that he had, and those guys were role players on teams that were, you know, contenders. Um, but for the first time, I mean, we can count last year as well, obviously. You know, mm-hmm. they have to carry the weight on the court and in the room. And I think there there will be times in this season when you will need to have another player who is not named Tatum or Brown come in and get the boys together and rah-rah the troops, you know, because it's very hard for a player 24, 25 years old to do everything in this league. It takes time. It takes seasoning. When I throw in a chuck roast, it takes five hours, not five minutes. You know, it takes time. Yeah. And I think these guys need to learn that they don't need to do everything for this basketball team. And the more they share the sugar and the more they work together as a team on and off the court, the better off they're going to be. It has been an absolute blast to have you on the podcast, Sammy P. Uh, And I mean that, like just talking to you about like just, good old Boston sports and as well as, you know, that the betting odds um, surrounding the, the Patriots and, and the Bruins and, 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 and frankly, like, seriously, like it's been a very lively, entertaining conversation, man. Like, so seriously, thank you for, for coming on the, the podcast. It's been a blast. This is Sammy P. He is a sports betting analyst for Fox sports and Nesson. He previously also worked for WGN Radio in Chicago, NBC Sports, and 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 Vizen as well. Sammy P, thank you so much for for your time and as well as for providing me with your insight as well. Well, thank you for the invitation and thank you for hitting the laugh track a couple times. I appreciate you <laughs> reaching out, and we will stay yeah. in touch. Absolutely, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.